Hey, and welcome to City Hall Stories. I'm Jack English, and I think local governments have some of the most interesting stories that exist. Almost everything we do on a regular basis is affected by local government decisions, and this provides a massive opportunity for real change if we better understand how it works and how to affect it. I hope the incredible humans you hear from in this podcast inspire you to look closer at your own local government and become a part of the solution. Eleni, or Lenio, Medivili is currently the chief heat officer of the city of Athens, Greece, and a leading European actor in the urban fight for climate resilience and adaptation. Formerly the deputy mayor for urban nature and resilience, she is on a mission to prepare Athens' millions of residents for the decades of scorching heat that await. Lenio was a delightful guest and genuinely challenged my conception of a city's role in the global response to climate change. We discussed best practices in heat-proofing cities, the heat wave that torched Europe this past summer, and how to continue getting out of bed each day when facing such monumental, and frankly scary, forces. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Lenio Mudavili. Lenio, our first guest from the European continent, really excited to talk to you, not only because of your incredibly broad background, but some of the extremely topical work you're tackling around sustainability and resilience. Just last month, you took on an entirely new role with the city of Athens. Do you mind speaking more about the past summer in Athens and then maybe more generally your history with the city and city government? Uh, sure. Thanks for having me, Jack. The last summer was was really a shock for for most of us here in Athens, but also for the different Mediterranean countries in general, because we had one uh, record-breaking level of heat in Europe after the other. It was it was a crazy summer because it started in Greece. The heat started these heat waves that were extreme in intensity as well as in duration, started in the beginning, at the end of July, beginning of August. And first it was Greece and Turkey, and then it moved to Italy, Spain, and Portugal. Again, the the extreme levels of heat were unprecedented for Europe and for the Mediterranean area. In the experience of Athens, was that we started having this uh, heat wave, which um, maybe three or four days in reached its peak, which was 43 to 44 degrees Celsius. Almost that same day, uh, we started having the beginning of two extraordinary mega fires that were, the one was really at the outskirts of the city, and the other one was um, not too far, like about 70 uh, kilometers outside of the city in Evia on the island of Evia, which is actually very close to the, um, to, to the mainland. So, so it was a combination of this extraordinary heat, which was exacerbated by the urban heat island phenomenon, which means that if you have like a, a heat wave, it gets even worse in the center of the city. And this was also made worse by the fact that we had these fires nearby, which were creating these red skies with gray clouds. And um, we had ash rain raining for days in the city, like every now and then, depending on how the winds turned, we had ashes falling onto the city and uh, covering everything around us. And also we had extraordinary uh, air pollution that also made it almost impossible to breathe, which was already the condition because it was so hot that you could hardly take a deep breath so it was it was it felt and the city was thank god was empty to a large extent because in the beginning of august most of the athenians leave to go to the islands or go to the mainland to their villages etc and on vacation so 
we were very lucky because there were not too many people uh, in the city and which meant that we didn't have blackouts but it the feeling of the city was almost like you know post apocalyptic like you were watching a movie of this empty city with these red skies and ash rain and toxic unbreathable air so that was the experience, that was the experience of this like nightmarish summer in Athens and from my experience in Athens I was there a, a long time ago so I can't remember it perfectly but it's not extremely modern the buildings aren't all built in 2017 with fantastic air conditioning and you know, public transport is is often you're standing outside to wait for a bus or a tram so what was actually the experience for the Athenians that were still in Athens during that summer you said a lot of them were gone but for those that did remain especially among the elderly what were some of the concrete yeah. impacts of this heat uh, so we don't have uh, data yet for morbidity and mortality uh, in relation to this heat wave. However, uh, there is a high level of energy poverty in Athens. And we do have as people that don't cannot afford to turn on their air conditioning or do not have air conditioning installed in their homes. Um, that's not a very big percentage, but we do have a relatively large percentage of energy poverty. I mean, it's not a big percentage of people that do not have air conditioning. I think the percentage of, of air conditioning in houses, in, in apartments is, is quite quite large. The, the issue is whether people can pay it or not. So we are very worried about people that are above the age of 60 who often remain in the city during the summer. Pensioners, for example, to a large extent, but also people that have other health uh, pre-existing conditions, such as people with diabetes or people with breathing um, problems. So these are populations that we were very conscious of trying to reach and, and make sure that could protect them uh, during these days. So there was a lot of stress among the people in the municipality about how to best make sure that these people were protected. It was also a big stress for doing manual labor, any kind of manual labor indoors or outdoors in places that didn't have air conditioning indoors, which, for example, includes people working in restaurants that, that are up on their feet for, a, for long hours in this heat, or people that are delivery people on on um, either bicycles or motorcycles. So, you know, people that we don't really think about are, are very vulnerable to heat uh, stroke and, and different kind of heat illnesses that could come uh, along with it, especially during prolonged periods of extreme heat, where because of the, as I said before, the urban heat island, we don't have uh, at night a significant lowering of temperatures, which makes the body kind of take a, a little bit of a, a break and actually return to a more normal functioning of the organs. If you keep you know, the body on high temperatures throughout the day and the night, then it, the people become much more vulnerable to heat, heat effects, uh, health heat kind of related effects. Now that we've touched on really the issue at stake for the city of Athens, do you mind sharing specifically what your role entails and also a little bit about your yes. background more generally with the city in resilience yes. and sustainability? I'll start with the role, the role of the chief heat officer, which was actually established on the 23rd of July, a little bit before the, the heat wave hit the city. So we didn't really know that this was coming uh, at the time. I've been working together with the Adrian Arsht and Rockefeller Resilience Center, which is uh, in Washington. It's part of the Atlantic Council in Washington. We have established 
the Extreme Heat Resilience Alliance, which is um, a whole uh, group of organizations and people and scientists and um, and city uh, policymakers and decision makers and, and city networks that have come together to discuss about heat and develop technical assistance for cities in dealing with uh, heat resilience and the protection of the vulnerable peoples. I have been firmly kind of an advocate that Um, cities have to prepare for heat and that we have been talking about global warming for decades, but somehow we have missed the point that we cities are the most vulnerable kind of locales in global warming and that cities will be dealing with extraordinary heat conditions because of climate change. So somehow it seems to me that we have missed that point and that there hasn't been enough said and done about preparing and and shielding cities and and building resilience in cities in relation to rising heat. So um, this is why uh, with this newly formed Resilience Center at the Atlantic Council, which was about three years ago, we immediately kind of embarked uh, in, in creating a very strong work stream on issues of heat. And part of of what we decided is, as I said, we would work with this Extreme Heat Resilience Alliance and identify one city per continent that would be our kind of springboard. Is that, I don't know if that's the right word, the kind of the... um, the city that would would start working with, but would also start through that city collaborating with other cities for figuring out how best cities can deal with rising heat. So uh, Athens was chosen to be the city in in uh, for Europe that would be kind of as I said the springboard of efforts that we were going to put in uh, in cities and heat. The mayor of Athens, Kostas Bakoyanis, in uh, starting it, the collaboration with the Extreme Heat Resilience Alliance and the and the, the Resilience Center named the uh, chief heat officer to coordinate the the different kind of types of tef- technical assistance that are coming forward from the Atlantic Council, but also to kind of take on the concept of having somebody that wakes up every morning worrying about how to make the city better in relation of of heat adaptation agreed to become the interim chief heat officer to set them to set things in motion and organize the different let's say pillars or packages of of measures and of actions and policies that we should start kind of putting in place in Athens start discussing with other cities in Europe in kind of codifying and creating kind of a standardized approach to these issues uh, from city to city i can try to be a little bit more specific there are three general kind of packages of actions that I have to kind of put into effect. The first one has to do with education and awareness raising because we know very little about heat waves. As as it's often been said, heat waves are silent killers. Of all of the extreme different climate events that the climate changes, climate crisis is actually bringing about, uh, heat waves are the most deadly ones. And they kind of roll in and out and we hardly know what has hit us. They're still quite vague in the minds of people what heat is all about and what heat waves are all about and how what dangers come with them. And very little attention is given to them through the media because again it's difficult to communicate them because there's not there's not much to see. They're not very dramatic. So one of the issues is to figure out how to make heat waves more prominent in the minds of people and also 
make more clear what the dangers are, which would create the capacity, higher capacity among decision makers to put in effect different uh, policies. But first of all, you have to make it clear and, and you have to know your enemy in a way. So a big part of that, we think it will be a game changer to actually name, but mostly categorize heat waves. So there's a big discussion now about starting to uh, categorize heat waves um, so that we can forecast what kind of how bad the heat wave that's coming is going to be and, and actually have a whole series of actions and policies that are set into motion. So uh, the second package is the exactly the emergency preparedness. So how to best protect the people that are uh, most vulnerable, figure out what the connections are between heat and health more directly and how to best uh, intervene so that we break these patterns of people uh, actually uh, dying during um, the extreme heat. Because uh, again, I have to make very clear that we only expect that it's going to get worse. So we really have to prepare. And the final package of measures that I have to oversee is, is how do we start really transforming cities so that they are everything that they do in the urban environment is uh, lowering temperatures. And this is something that, especially in cities like Athens and other Mediterranean cities, has to be really, we really have to step up our game and, and really move very fast towards bringing, for example, nature into the cities and biodiversity and create different type of cities that can best withstand the rising of temperatures. So these are the general kind of aspects. And of course, the whole idea of how to finance all these things is another kind of issue that also we have some people in the Extreme Heat Resilience Alliance that are working on different financial tools, help cities uh, finance different things. So I'm going to put the full stop here and ask you to remind me of the other aspect of the question that you asked me, Jack. I think that was that was a fantastic explanation. I do want to dive into the economic impacts as well. But just touching on your previous answer, it sounds like, and please correct me if I'm wrong, this is really a mitigation process. You did say the third point was around lowering temperatures, but how much of an impact can a city really have on some of these macro trends that are actually driving rising temperatures? You know, Things like CO2 output. At the end of the day, Athens has very little, a micro percentage of an impact on the global emissions, which are actually driving these temperature rises. So is this really all about accepting that the future is going to be what it is and just understanding how best to insulate the city of Athens and all of your residents from the really negative impacts of that? No, mitigation and adaptation go always hand in hand. You know, and, and cities are, as you know, are a very big contributor to, I think they have 70% of the global CO, uh, CO2 emissions are from cities, and Athens plays its role in that. So, of course, Athens also has to kind of look into mitigation. But I'm focusing, and the work that we're doing in relation to heat focuses on adaptation and resilience, uh, because we feel like if we only kind of look at the, at the IPCC uh, report that came out this uh, August, which was the sixth report, it kind of makes it clear that we will be facing, even if we manage to hit the type of reduction in, in uh, greenhouse gas emissions by the 2030 and the 2050 and the 2050s, we still are going to uh, hit 1.5 uh, rise of global temperatures, and we're not going to be able to to 
to limit it below 1.5. We're talking that even in the best case scenario now, we're going for 1.5 or higher by the middle of the century. So I'm not saying that the mitigation is not important. I think it's probably the most important. But at the same time, it's at this point, we see more and more the need to prepare cities for um, the damage that we've already done and the damage of rising temperatures, even if we manage tomorrow to stop all of the emissions of the greenhouse gas emissions, like in 2022, let's say, if we had the, the, the power to do that, we would still see temperatures rising for years or maybe decades. So this is like something that we really have to prepare for. So I don't know if this is clear, but for me, in my mind, it's very clear that yes, mitigation is really, we really have to focus and step up our game, but we also have really been not facing the facts that we will have rising temperatures and we are, we have rising temperatures and we have to make sure that cities and the people that are often least responsible for this issue have to suffer most, which is, you know, the lower socioeconomic classes usually. And this is a bit of a broad, almost philosophical question, but why do you think humans are so myopic on this topic? Why do you think that we've let the situation get to the point now that we're scrambling one yard out from the finish line to try and adapt? Why have we not been building these into our cities and our, into our development since we knew that this was really going to be an issue 30 years ago, is it just politics or is there something more philosophical behind this all? Well, because you said the question in a, in a philosophical framework, you, you know, you, we have to think about it in a more philosophical way. I think, of course, it's politics, but I think you're right. There, There is something which probably has to do with the fact that it's really difficult for humans to wrap their minds around uh, a crisis that is of the, of such enormous proportions. It's, it's, you know, we have to act locally for something that is almost like it's so enormous that I think a lot of times it's too daunting to even think about. And I think that might be par- partially why people have a lot of resistance in, in actually being able to, to accept it and deal with it even on a local level. I mean, on a, on a, on a global level, we have the the problems of collaboration of different governments, which is like, as you said, the political side to it. But on a more kind of existential level uh, for humans, I think it's it's hard to conceptualize the the enormity of it. And, and Linio, how do you personally confront that daunting challenge and still wake up each day energized to tackle this? <laughs> I I think I am a... I feel better when I feel like I'm doing things. When I'm doing things, I feel that I feel empowered and I feel much worse if I'm not doing things. And, and, and then I kind of sink into a dark hole. So, so when things are really scary, some people kind of feel better when they are, they're, they're dealing things face to face. And, and, and they somehow these people also tend to have like this crazy optimism, which, <laughs> which helps, but yeah. We're, we're right in 2021 right now, but I want to draw back maybe to four or five years ago to your role in founding the Department of Resilience and Sustainability for the city of Athens. So can you share that experience with us as well as some of the challenges maybe that you faced in charting that new territory for the city? I love this question because the truth is that that was the beginning of everything. It was a really, really important 
important program that ran that was called 100 Resilient Cities. And cities applied to be part of these 100 resilient cities. And the, the, the cities that were accepted that were amazing cities from all around the world, from Athens to New York to Paris to um, Mexico City to Buenos Aires to Melbourne, like amazing cities, all around, uh, Christchurch, etc. Amazing cities from all around the, the, the globe, small and big ones. We ran the same methodology, which basically began from bottom up. It started each city, uh, the mayors assigned a chief resilience officer, which I was the lucky person to, to be given that position. I was actually elected in the municipality with a green agenda. And um, I suggested to the mayor that, you know, when we did win, the, I applied for this 100 Resilient Cities Network uh, and program. And I suggested to the mayor that I he makes me the chief resilient officer. And I was I ran this methodology uh, that all of the different cities ran together, which went to the people and asked the people of the cities, what are the things that you are most worried about for the city? Basically harvested from what we call in a way citizen science, what are the uh, basic shocks and stresses uh, that the city of Athens is facing and will face, and then created the strategy that uh, again harvested ideas and uh, studies and policies from uh, different stakeholders uh, to create these. Each city created its own resilience strategy. And um, this was an extraordinary uh, experience for me and an extraordinary school that I learned so much uh, on how to, to deal with cities and how cities work and how people, how you can streams of dialogue with the people of the city and actually kind of create great stuff. So in order to, to do all this, um, I felt that I, of course, I couldn't do it by myself as a chief resilience officer. I kind of uh, figured out a way to create the Office of Resilience and Sustainability, which was the first time that this such an office was cre created in the municipality of Athens. And it still uh, is part of, this was created in 2016, and it's still today uh, uh, the office in the city that looks at how we can best find policies that are resilient and sustainable. And basically, uh, what does resilient mean? In my mind, to make it kind of to, to create a shortcut of what, you know, what this whole program meant for the city is how the city has to create policies and solutions that are multi-benefit. So you don't do something that is only targeting this one thing and the solution to one thing, but you make it multi-relevant. So for example, if you make pavements, you make sure that the pavements are also good, not just for walking, but also for climate change, also for, you know, maybe creating um, new uh, job, uh, new, new types of jobs. The, the idea is to kind of make sure that when you think of uh, a specific policy or a specific action, you try to make it as wide as possible and to make, if possible, confront many different problems at the same time. The second thing is that it's multi-hazard. So you think of how one solution can face different hazards and not just one hazard, because we often kind of try to deal with one problem and kind of create vulnerabilities in other sectors. And finally, multi-stakeholder, which means to kind of have a lot of people on board before you start any kind of solutions. So this was in very briefly what it means to kind of do 
things that are more resilient and sustainable for the city. So we've been working for that for for since 2016 in the city of Athens and and going strong. And and then I became I asked the mayor to also make me the deputy mayor for urban nature and climate resilience. So this was something that I've been I actually had uh, the authority to do different types of imp- to start implementing uh, uh, parts of the strategy. And that was uh, only for two years because the mayor's term kind of finished. And then we have a new mayor that took over. And now I, I stayed on as an advisor for issues of resilience and sustainability to the new mayor. And he was the one, as I said, Mayor Costas Barbians, that announced this new position for chief heat officer. So that's kind of the trajectory of these issues on the, in the city of Athens. So speaking about trajectories, Lino, let's say in 10, 20 years, if everything in your role goes perfectly and everything goes perfectly in the city of Athens as it pertains to adaptability and mitigation, what does the future of Athens look like? Oh, Jack, you've been to Athens. So you know Athens is a very densely built and densely populated city. It has a lot of cement and a lot of asphalt and you know parks here and there unevenly uh, distributed in the in in the urban fabric, mostly around the center of Athens, we have more green, and in in the poorer areas and and most heat kind of prone hotspots of the city, we have of course le- less green, and this coincides as usual with socio the socioeconomic kind of distribution of communities in the city, which is true for almost every city where there's less green, there's like more poverty. The future of this city, when I uh, imagine it and visualize it, is a city that has much more, that is much greener and has many more elements, water elements and um, big kind of urban forests, vertical urban forests that take big parts of what are now streets and what are now dedicated uh, public spaces to cars. And also we have a lot of underground waters that we have managed through the last decades to cover all of them and put them underground and put cement trapments. And and kind of I really would like to see uh, more water elements in the surface and, and that are supporting an incredible amount of biodiversity in the city. And so I see a city that's transformed into a, a city that's really a biodiversity, if I can say that, but definitely a much more green and much more desirable city to live in. And of course, that means neighborhoods that are more contained, neighborhoods that have um, the capacity to support the needs of the people in a very local level so that we don't have to take cars to kind of cross the city to do things that we need to do. And this whole idea of a slow mobility People walking more, people using more kind of um, scooters, electrical scooters and bicycles and a city that's much more kind of uh, also manages to live outdoors as much as it does now, but that it's actually much more beautiful and much more delightful to live in. Yeah, really love that concept of increasing density, walkability, communal living, locally reliant rather than relying on really far chains of transportation to get basically the things that we need to survive. So can totally appreciate all of that. In Athens, it's it's still possible. The neighborhoods actually 
are are viable kind of aspects of the city. So it's not the city that's you know very you know has the anyway you you know it's, You're correct. it's kind yeah. of possibility yeah sorry no no no. of course it, it's sprawling but not in a kind of an american metropolitan sprawl exactly. type so if i think yeah. if i think of a sprawl i think of dallas or houston and there's freeways and highways going out you know 40 kilometers and you're still in the city whereas athens is is spread out there is no kind of centralized financial district but at the same time there are those kind of communal aspects of living in each of those neighborhoods which are really unique and, and special yes. Yes, exactly. For a uh, at City Hall Stories, we have a traditional closing question, which I'll pose to you, Lenio. It's pretty simple. What's one accepted truth of local government that you think is incorrect? I think that something that people underestimate is the public servants in cities. That that often the public servants in cities have a, get a bad rap. Uh, in being like bureaucrats, people that are usually uh, a problem rather than a solution. This is true to to a large extent in cities. I mean, there's always this side of the public servant who is the bureaucrat, who is really totally uh, the problem (laughs) by, by, you know, either not working or hating his job or, you know, whatever. But on the other side of that, there is an enormous an amazing amount of public servants that work in cities that have given their lives for cities and have incredible knowledge and love for is what we call is the inside of the city, which is the public space. And I think that this is really like we should really celebrate these people because they often do an amazing job and they're not really paid much for it. Yep, I I totally agree. So Linio, I feel like we barely scratched the surface on your work and, and really more broadly Athens' role in the fight against the climate crisis. I really enjoyed the conversation and would love to have you back on in maybe a year's time to discuss this further and, and hear about all the awesome progress that you've made. I would I would love to talk, talk to you again. It was a pleasure to be with you and to be chatting with you. Thank you, Jack, for your great questions. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll talk again in a few months and I'll have some, some good news. <laughs> Thanks, Lydia. <laughs> It's me again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts and connect with me on LinkedIn. See you soon.